You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back, Arizona homeowners. Welcome to Rosie on the House. It is the fourth Saturday of the month. So it's the Urban Farm Month with Farmer Greg and lots of food. Bearing gifts. Bearing gifts. We've got how many? This is uh, a navel orange. Navel orange. This yeah, is the a perfect uh, roundness. You, this could pass off for a, a baseball if it was just a little smaller. It's yeah. so perfect. It's round. it's halfway between a baseball and a softball size, which is really nice. And that's a, a pink car a car navel, most mm. likely. They uh, are pink inside. Most of the, I went to a party recently, and I took a big bowl of those and I had to put a sign on them so that people knew they weren't grapefruits, but they were navel oranges and man there was 50 people there and that bowl disappeared in no time you know what i like about citrus it smells and tastes the same coffee never as good as it smells never (laughs) right um right citrus it's always that that good and we've got this one that's a little bit smaller one that no that's that is an orange that's my my second favorite orange next to the cara cara navel that is a trovita orange the cool thing about the trovita it's fairly easy to peel and it's great for peeling and eating or juicing so you can do both generally navels you don't want to juice you want to just eat them but the trovita is really great for that the only downside to the trovita is there are a few few seeds in it ah that's not a downside that's fruit (laughs) there you go exactly that's produce exactly yeah and these uh the big navels they're they're real pulpy for juicing aren't they yeah yeah that um, and, and then just, we've got just, just your, lemon, eat them. your typical lemon here. Lemon, yeah, it's a Lisbon lemon. Lisbon, okay. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, not quite ripe. You can see that it's still a little bit green, but that's fine. It's perfectly ripe inside, I've found. Um, I actually, this year, uh, I had a navel orange fall off the sec- off of the tree the second week of November, which was like, all right, well, it fell off. I picked it up off the ground and I cut it open and ate it. And it was it was still a little bit green, but it was delicious. Now, could so, you leave that on the countertop and let it ripen, or if it falls off the tree, it's done and you just got to eat it? It'll as probably as. ripen a little bit more. You know, not not as much though as your other fruits. But and then the other things that are ripe now at the urban farmer are basically your citrus in the fruit category. So another one of my favorite ones is the gold nugget mandarin uh, orange. And then we've got mineola tangelos and kumquats. You know, those those are the ones you eat the skin and the inside. The skin is sweet and the inside's really tart. It's great to cut that up and put that on, on top of a salad. It's really nice. I have not tried one. Uh- Oh, man. I'm, I'll have to swing by the Urban Farm with a little basket. You, what was I thinking? <laughs> I didn't bring some of those. I tried planting one, and it didn't it didn't work, and I had never tried it again. And I, mm. I'm not even sure I even noticed or looked for them in, uh, in the grocery store. But when I looked at planting the citrus and picking the varieties mm-hmm. and trying to have something producing all year long, kumquat fell in a gap that I didn't have. And you know, I mean, I've planted 50 trees and I'd lost a handful of them. Yeah. Well, it happens. And, you know, we've discovered, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about this next week, but we've discovered some, this, really the silver bullet of growing fruit trees here in the desert. 
Um, this is this is amazing what I've discovered this year. So I'll share that in our segment for next and, week. And you just alluded to it. This is one of those random five week Saturdays, and we save that fifth Saturday for spontaneous Fun. whatever. Yeah. And your fruit tree program's coming up. So we're talking edibles. The first half of the program, we've got a gallon that writes cookbooks. Mom knows more about her. She actually has the books. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to learning about her. I haven't done quite all of my. Uh, topic research for that Saturday yet, but <laughs> right? the first half, we're going to talk with uh, Carolyn cooking the Wild Southwest, Ooh. and it's all recipes from the Indians and mm-hmm. uh, no, the Spanish when they were here in the 1600s and what they lived off of that naturally grows here. Then the second There's half- There's so much that grows in the desert. It's amazing. And the second half- Is Farmer Greg, and we'll we're going to talk all about, about our fruit tree program. The 40 years experience you've had on planting edibles, not necessarily native mm-hmm. to our landscape, but that do well in the desert. Because yeah. sometimes, you know, you, you got to go from a jojoba bean to an orange. You just, <laughs> you got to get an orange in there, there every now go. and then. <laughs> and that's for next week. <laughs> that is for next week. What are we talking about this week? Oh, my Other gosh. Other than this wonderful production of produce you've got here. Well, there's always something to eat at the urban farm. So let me let me actually step back. When I say the urban farm, people will all often go on in their head. I, I watch them, and they're you know kind of thinking, oh, farm acres. I wonder what that's about. And the urban farm is my house. It's near 16th Street and Glendale Avenue. It's a third of an acre, so it's only 80 feet wide and 160 feet deep. And basically, what I have done there over the past, I've been there 29 years, is landscaped the yard. So it looks like a nicely landscaped yard, but most everything is edible or it supports edibles. Or it's edible to animals. Or like you that, feed your weeds to the chickens exactly, in your lawn and exactly. the chickens make the eggs that feed you. <laughs> right. Everything that's produced, and it is a flood irrigated property, so I do have grass still. And uh, so, like the grass clippings, they go to the chickens first and they eat whatever they eat. And then the rest of it goes into the compost bin. So everything, I've, the way I've designed the yard is everything gets used on site. And, it, and it's been a learning process. It wasn't like from day one when you moved in, you had this masterpiece plan. You had, right. The concept was there. Yeah. But working and getting there and trial and error, trial and error, trial and error along the way is been really what makes this program when you're on with us, so interesting, just learning and hearing all the different oh yeah as elements and aspects because you're not one to throw money at this solution either. You're one to work through it, work think through, through it, it yep. and find a, a way. I mean, sometimes things cost money, sure, but it's not, oh. It's not first. I got to go drop, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Three, 300 bucks on two tons of soil over here. <laughs> right. You're gonna. I want you to build your own on your site. I, I had time for the $5,000 irrigation system. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 don't do that. And I actually planted my first garden here in 1974. So when you do the math on that, that was 44 years ago. And I'm not even that old. So <laughs> Congratulations. How many people can pull that off? <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, back then I wrote a paper. That was in the eighth grade then. And I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans. Back in the eighth grade, middle 70s, I knew something was up back then, and it just carried forward. I, I, had a, I was in technology from 1984 until 2004, that 20 years. I owned the Apple Authorized Training Center here in town and uh, ran a software company and had one of the first uh, laser typesetting companies here in town. So I've, I've been an entrepreneur since, uh, since I was 15 when I started my first business. I used to clean, service, and build fish ponds here in town. 
but this notion of gardening and growing food in our yard, it's always been really close. And I bought the urban farm 29 years ago. I've lived there over half my life. And it's my place to experiment. And so we do tours there periodically. You'll see some coming up in March and April. And in the tours, we, um, you know, we get basically walk people through the front yard and the backyard and share what's going on in the space. And often people will get there and they're, it's a bit overwhelming because there's so much going on. I could talk for days about what I do at the urban farm. And I just tell people, listen, take a deep breath. Don't get overwhelmed. Pick one or two things that you are interested in and go do those. Because you're right. My place didn't happen overnight. It happened over 29 years. And if I was going to start again on a project like this, I would probably take five years from beginning to end. And what I tell people when you first get into a space and you want to start converting it to edible, spend at least a year with the space before you make any major changes. Major changes is taking out any big trees, uh, you know, big earthworks, anything like that. You want to really know what's happening in all of the seasons. You know, when it rains really hard, where does the water go? You're going to want to know that. Uh, you know, on December 21st, which, you know, hey, we're right here. Go out at noon. One day later, we can we can skirt that a little bit, I think. <laughs> exactly. Go out go out and um, see. pay attention to where the sun is at noon. And I think what you'll find is that you have a really long shadow because the, the sun is lowest in the sky on December 21st. It's highest in the sky on June 21st. So go back out on June 21st and pay attention to where the sun is at at noon because that'll inform a lot of your decisions. And on, you know, sunset is pretty key in that too because where it sets is completely different from... Completely different. Yep, exactly. There's, there, there's a time where it, it lines up perfectly where it, the light from the sun blocks the eyes from the garage door at the house, but it's only that one certain time of year, uh -huh. right in the early morning because of the way that the earth is, is a 13 degree axis. Something like Something that. Something like that. <laughs> Somebody's going to correct us here pretty soon. If there we're you wrong. go. I can point in the sky. <laughs> I know where the sun is at noon on June 21st, and I know where the sun is at noon on uh, December 21st, just because I paid attention to it. So that's and I study something called permaculture. I like to call permaculture the art and science of working with nature. How do we work in the flow of natural systems? And the first premise of permaculture is observation. Stand back and pay attention. I've Now, do you ever use markers in that? If you're in the middle of the yard mm -hmm. and we're out there on December, we're going to say 22nd just because we're a day late here. Yeah. But it's not going to make that big a difference. Right. I don't think our margin of error one day on 365 days yeah, is not <laughs> not much. Just put a five, uh, five foot pole in the ground. And when noon hits, put a marker where that shadow is. Ooh. Then when June comes, put a marker. marker where is that? So you could take that same distance anywhere in the yard and mm -hmm. know, okay, here in the corner of the yard over here, what's it going to look like in the summer? What's it going to look like in the winter? And marking your marking it that way? Yeah, that's a great way to do it because that's a good piece of data. You want to know that, especially if you're wanting to plant a garden on the north side of anything. And the north side of your structure, of your wall, is going to get the least amount of sun because of what we just talked about. 
in where the you know where the sun is at and the longest shadows. So the north side of a structure or a northern exposure is you're going to be your hardest place to get enough sight, get enough sun to garden. We're out in the urban farm with Farmer Greg here at Rosie on the House for Saturday of every month. We have the pleasure of Farmer Greg joining us and helping us teach and motivate and educate us on growing and sustaining our own food source. Thank you. Right in the middle of a conversation on microclimates with Farmer Greg of the Urban Farm. But I had to look during the break. I'm a curious mind. I, I like details and facts. Uh, it's 23, 25 degrees, degrees yeah. that the earth is tilted at an angle away from the vertical perpendicular to the plane of the earth's orbit around the sun. Oh, my head's spinning. <laughs> So's the earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Pun on not a 23 degrees angle. There you go. <laughs> All right. So microclimates. Microclimates. So one of the things that I want you to do is start spending time, preferably in your bare feet, out in your yard. Watch for thorns, but go spend time and connect with your dirt around your house and wherever your space is at and start paying attention for those places that are warmer or cooler. And some of the things that make it warmer or cooler, if you have a block wall, that's going to make it really a lot hotter. Uh, asphalt, concrete, those things. Gravel is another thing. Um, in fact, in my fruit tree class that I've got coming up here in a couple of weeks, three ways to kill your fruit trees. One of the surefire ways to kill your fruit trees is scrape back some gravel and plant a fruit tree in the middle of your gravel yard. You're just going to cook the poor thing. So you need to start paying attention to those things. And once you start noticing that, then you have the piece that I call the solar aspect piece. And we already touched on the northern solar aspect. And really the easiest way, and I discovered this one this year, if you go stand with your back against a wall, the wall of your house, the block wall, or and whatever direction you're looking. So if we're standing on the south side of a property with our back against the wall, we're looking north. That's going to be a northern exposure, a northern solar aspect. That's going to be, again, one of the harder places. A western solar aspect, you're, you know, you might be on the east side of your property with your back against a wall and you're looking west. That's a western solar aspect. Western's really hard for growing in the summertime. It's going to be your hottest microclimate because it's getting sun from noon until sundown. And that's that's the place to bake things. It's getting noon, sun from noon until sundown, but it's hot from about eight. <laughs> but, <still>. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes exactly. seven. <laughs> so western, western solar aspect isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, when the calico cow was down on Central and Dunlap, I managed their gardens for about six years. Uh, Susan was a friend of mine. And we had a western patio there that was all concrete. And I had a six-foot-wide, 30-foot-long garden bed on the patio that was on the west side with concrete all around it. And what I discovered very quickly was that growing food in there from about May 1st to about October 1st was futile. But from October 1st to May 1st, yeah, we could like grow some thermal warming everything. Almost. Yes, we actually planted in late September, we'd plant tomatoes in, on our back patio. And for those of you that have ever tried to grow tomatoes here in the wintertime, good luck. It's hard. 
Uh, they don't do well. But we would get bushels of tomatoes off of that patio in winter, in the dead of winter, because the concrete held the heat so well. Um, so don't write off a Western aspect just because uh, it's a Western solar aspect, but pay attention to that. And really the easiest place to grow food in the desert is an Eastern solar aspect. An Eastern solar aspect is get sun from sun up until noon. Uh, it would generally be on the west side of your property, so your back's against uh, your house. Like in my my case, the front yard of the urban farm, if my back's against the wall, I'm looking east. Berries do great in that space. Uh, all your garden vegetables, herbs, if you can give your garden shade after about you know, one or two o'clock in the afternoon, your garden is going to love you. And yours, you mentioned it was the eastern side, and we're mm-hmm. going to talk later uh, in this program just about all the package stuff that's going on and ways and ideas to help prevent, you know, your, your UPS or your Amazon package getting ripped off your oh, front door. Oh, right. Do you, with all of your gardening in your front yard, do you ever wake up one day and be like, that thing was full of lemons yesterday. <laughs> I went to bed and I had a bushel of kumquats on that tree. Where'd yeah. they go? <laughs> um, I, I haven't. Although, um, you know, recently we've had neighbors knock and say, can we have some? Because here's the thing that I've discovered over the years. I'm 57 years old and, and it took me a while to get this. But for me, the only place that this notion of lack, not having enough lives, is between our ears. Because when I go look in my yard, the amount of abundance is mind-blowing. I hide a few citrus trees in the backyard. <laughs> Your private the, stock. My private stock. <laughs> but the, you know, the front yard is for sharing and a few kids that live next door to the north of us and they know that they can pick it, but it's not baseballs. It's pick it and eat it. If you're going to eat it, you can pick it. Well, that's one great thing about uh, your community and bringing it together. How many people on your street have been inspired to do the same or do they all say, ah, I don't have to. Farmer (laughs) Greg does it all. (laughs) No, there you go. A few of them. One of the things I do for the people on my street, because I run my urban farm fruit tree program, which we're going to talk about next week. Uh, anybody that's on my street, there's 22 houses on my street. I, I, for years, I've given them free fruit trees if they want them. So anybody on my street that wants a fruit tree, I, you know, it's like, let me know what you want. Have a re- reestablish an old orchard there. Yeah, that's what I'm after. <laughs> and that really is a, your ultimate plan is really to teach uh, Phoenix and cities in Arizona to become self-sustaining by yeah. their own food production. Yeah, one of my goals in life, and I take on big audacious goals. One of my goals in life is to build a food system. And I can't do this alone. I need your help and everybody else help that's listening out there. Um, Build a food system here that will feed Phoenix. If you're just joining us on the Saturday morning, we're joining Farmer Greg talking urban farming. As we went to break, we were talking about making Phoenix and Every community in Arizona, its own uh, standalone food secure space. Food secure space, and if you grow your own food, you don't have to worry about a lot of these things like uh, what romaine lettuce to buy at the store or Or cauliflower. A couple weeks, a week or so ago, yeah. You never had a recall at the urban farm, (laughs) right? Exactly. (laughs) A lot of that happens because of the immense amount of fertilizers and manures that they're bringing in from who knows where. And when you're growing it in a small space like yours, you're just not running into those kind of pathogens. It's never been a problem for me. 
in 29 years. Let me put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) And like you said, you've just got to start small. And that's actually part of our segment next Saturday, talking about edibles in the desert. Mm -hmm. We've got a guest in talking about what the natives used to eat that's in our local plant life and then what you've brought in and have had success with on your fruit tree program. Mm -hmm. But we've got to start small. You can't just jump into this head over heels or you get burned out. I did it. Yeah, Um, (laughs) I done it. (laughs) I got several projects that aren't done right now because I got in too deep. What I tell people to do is start small. And the cool thing is, is that herbs are the most expensive thing to buy. And quite honestly, they're the easiest thing to grow. You can grow basil on your countertop in a sunny windowsill. It's really that simple. And so, you know, start there. Uh, You know, and if you want to graduate to a few pots on an eastern-facing patio, that's uh, really easy as well. And is an herb an evergreen? Will it just continue to live and live, or does it have like a a vegetable, a a short couple-month window? You mean like the herbs? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends. Cilantro and parsley are annuals, so they grow out and go to seed every year. Rosemary, oregano, thyme, those are perennials, so you plant them once and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger over time. Uh, basil also is an annual. You plant it every year. Okay. Yeah, I see uh, homeowners planting uh, rosemary mm-hmm. and basil around the yard, and it just grows and grows and grows. Oh, is yeah. that also a good bug deterrent? You can use it for cooking, but also a oh, bug yes. deterrent? Absolutely. Yeah, the wow. fragrance has mm-hmm. a tendency to keep them away. And the cool thing is when they go to seed, when rosemary's flowering, when basil, oregano is flowering, they are covered with bees. They bring in the bees like you wouldn't believe. Which is a good thing. We need the bees. Abs- it absolutely <laughs> is a good thing. Uh, I, you know, I'll get questions from people occasionally and they say, hey, I've, I have this zucchini. And it makes zucchinis that are about an inch and a half long and then they shrivel up and die. What's up with that? Well, they didn't get pollinated. And since I let herbs go to seed and flower at the urban farm, we don't have any problem with pollination issues like that anymore. So that's one of the things that I plant a lot of is herbs and flowers at the urban farm to bring in the pollinators so that we don't have to worry about things not getting pollinated. So we started off small with herbs on our window seals. You can do little pots on patios. You Mm -hmm. mentioned when people think farm, we think big huge massive acres right urban farm we're on a a third of an acre here pots on patios there's there's a lot of lot sizes that are similar to that a lot of people that might be in condos or apartments you're not eliminated from growing your own food source not at all there's there's many different things to do i've so i i told a little white lie a little while ago Uh, i haven't actually lived at the urban farm for 29 years i've lived there for 28 years and about five six years ago i moved out for a year I just, you know, it was like, I need a break. Um, and I, I moved in to a town home in Peoria. So I lived in Peoria for just under a year. And we had a 200-square-foot back patio that faced south. That's a bonus. And I grew basically everything that I grew at the urban farm, I grew there. So we were growing carrots and beets and Swiss chard and kale and, and so on and so on. So... You don't need a lot of space. The other really cool thing is I have something called a tower garden. If you just go look up tower garden on the internet, it is a, basically it's a hydroponic growing system that looks like a Christmas tree when it's, when it's all grown out and you just harvest it and eat it. And it, it mine 
holds 28 plants. So you get 28 plants when they're, you know, an inch and a half tall and let them grow out. And that's another great way to provide all your greens in the winter for you. In a very small amount of space because you're only using up the circumference of the base two by of the two. tower garden, which is two the water foot, container. Yep. Two foot diameter. And so it's, you know. 28 plants. Yep. 28 plants growing in there. So, that you know, that's a an amazing way to go as well. And that tower garden, is, is that mainly for herbs and that type of thing? I mean, we, you wouldn't put a carrot in there. <laughs> Correct. You don't do root crops in the tower garden. I do uh, herbs, a little bit of herbs, but mostly greens. Mm-hmm. You know, we we eat salads three, four, or five times a week at the Urban Farm, and it's nice to have those greens that we just go out and harvest and stick in the salad. Could you do tomatoes in that, too, as well? You could do tomatoes. You could absolutely do a tomato. If I was going to do a tomato in it, I'd put it on the bottom row. Because it's, it, it's vertical. Oh, so, I see. Okay. I had to think for a second. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, the top of the Christmas tree or the top of the food tree, I put uh, spinach is what's currently growing on the top mm-hmm. of my tower garden. Because of the t- tomato vine, it would obviously uh, consume everything from the exactly. top to the bottom once it took off. Okay. Exactly. So that is kind of hydroponic-ish. Yeah. Well, they actually call it aeroponics. Okay. Um, hydroponics, the roots are in water all the time. With aeroponics, basically what they do in a tower garden is it's 20-gallon uh, tank of water at the bottom, and it pumps. It uses a little pump, and it pumps it up, and it trickles down through this center tube, and and neutrifies and and waters the roots of the plants. Have That's you ever it. messed with any hydroponics? I've done a little bit of hydroponics, and it's you know it's absolutely doable here. Uh, it's just you know it's no, one of those systems. I've done aquaponics which is that raising. was my next question you had mentioned earlier one of your first jobs as or your first job as an my entrepreneur was converting swimming pools, pools into fish ponds yep i did that in the late 70s that was fun so yeah raising fish basically an aquaponics system is what we call a fish powered system and the fish poop provides the fertilizer for the plants and the plants clean the water for the fish. It's, you know, it's basically natural and natural systems going on there. There's a certain amount of produce you get oh, from yeah. your plants, and there's a certain amount of fish, fish you get. If you, if you want to raise fish, absolutely. Is there a type of fish? It seems like uh, to, tilapia yeah, seems to be the popular one. Yeah, tilapia is the popular one. And I've actually raised tilapia at the urban farm and eaten them um, years and years, actually decades ago. Um, I was playing with with uh, growing fish on property uh, in 89, 90, 91. I think I may have just set myself a big, audacious goal. Uh-oh. If, if I'm eating fish, I like halibut. Can we mash seawater and hydropon- and aquaponics together for no. for all this so if I can at least can, have I'm a I'm coming over to your place. <laughs> yeah, no, that's halibut. not going to work. Mm, that's what ah. kind of fish? I mean, uh, Tilapia. Just uh, any other fish you could? Uh, um, you could. I've I've played with, um, I've played with. I do you like me some fried before. catfish? Ah. Okay. Uh, I've played okay. with fat catfish before. In fact, I, I you know I had a really I love this story. Um, in 1978 or 79, I converted this guy's swimming pool into a fish pond, and um, you know that's the business I was in back then. And you know I was 20 years old and I knew how to do it in my head, and so we did it, and and I went on. And in 2008, I wrote a book called Grow Wherever You Go. And 
the book is stories about what people are doing and where they're growing food at. And I get, I put a email out to every, you know, my, all my communities. And I said, send me your stories. And I get this email from a gentleman named Robert Gilsdorf. And he's talking about in the late seventies, how he converted his swimming pool into a fish pond. And then for the next 15 years, every year they would raise catfish and do a catfish harvest on a Saturday and a catfish fry on the Sunday. <laughs> and the cool thing was, is that was the pool that I, I did that job. That was my job that I did back then. So it, you know, it kind of came back around for me, what, 78, 88, 98, 08, 30 years later. But the bummer is you never got invited to the fish fry. There you go. Gosh. <laughs> so, you know. You would- and you would probably need something swimming pool size to pull off catfish. You couldn't do catfish in a aquaponic thing with, that you could. Oh, tilap- you could. Could you? Yeah. I, I've heard tilapia you could put in a uh, a two by two foot space with mud and, and get. Yeah, <laughs> but we don't want to do that to them. Um, one of the tanks that I worked on was a uh, was an eight foot diameter tank, so it was cylindrical uh, and it was like eight feet tall, and we had catfish in it and. You know, it was a system that worked. So, well, that's always something I've been very intrigued by the the aquaponic side of things. Mm-hmm. I remember though that was decades ago. So we, you know, it's come a long way. <laughs> it's come a long way. Come a long way. So, what else do we have here? Talking about uh, when we're going back to the soils, where most of us are going to be doing it, whether it's in pots or yeah. out our backyard or mm-hmm. raised garden beds, keyhole garden type structures. We go back to the soil, back yeah. to the earth. And there is something about just working with the dirt that it just makes you ground it. Yep. Yeah. In fact, just in the past couple of weeks, there's an article that came out that said, if you're a, card- if you're a gardener, you could live up to 100. I just saw that article today. It's right? in the BBC.com. I yeah. I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, an, that was an interesting interesting article. So uh, there's they're coming up with... Keeps you, you know, moving up and down. Yeah, they're coming More. out with content like that. And really, your biggest job as a grower here in the desert, really anywhere, your biggest job as a grower is to create healthy soil. And there are five components to healthy soil. And if you try and plant in the dirt that you have in your backyard or front yard, good luck with that. Planting fruit trees, planting trees, planting gardens in the dirt that we have Although dirt is one of the components of healthy soil, if that's all you have, it's just not going to work. So your job is to create healthy soil, and there's five components to healthy soil. They are dirt, which is broken down rock, which has the micronutrients in it, but if all you have is the dirt, the, micro, it, the plants can, can't get the micronutrients out. So dirt, air space, so the soil can breathe a little bit. Water, so it keeps it, uh, you know, moist. Uh, let's see here. Dirt, airspace, water, organic matter. So this is compost, leaves, mulch, whatever kind of organic matter you want to add. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And all the life that's in the soil. Now, Emily Rocky down at Tanks Green Stuff has done some research, and she's found that there is less than 1% organic matter in our soils in the desert. And what's your best growing condition? You want a 10%, 50%? Good question. I've never measured it that way. 
But what I often will do, I only. Well, we did, know one percent's not good. One <laughs> percent's not good, exactly. Um, one of the things that uh, that I do is I just add compost right on top and then plant. So I'll tell you a quick story here of Jan's uh, garden. Okay, Gary's going to Gary's going to make us do it after the break. Hang yeah. tight. We're talking uh, with Farmer Greg, Urban Farm. It's urbanfarm.org if you'd like to learn more information. And we'll be talking about uh, the soil story and a little bit about next week in the fruit tree program. Yep. Get started on your own. All right, I apologize about that. We can do a lot. We just can't stop the clock. <laughs> so we, we we made you hold your story about Janice's garden. Jan's instant Jan's garden. instant garden. Jan's okay. instant garden. About five years ago, my buddy Steve, who's a longtime family friend, calls me and says, "Hey, Jan wants a garden. I don't install gardens anymore. That's you know, I'm gonna if I'm gonna do that work, I'm gonna do it at my place. But uh, you know, he's done all my computer work for me forever. Not ever charged me anything. So it's like, all right, well, send me a picture. And so the picture came through. It was an eastern exposure. So it was getting sun from sun up until noon. It was on the east side of their structure. Uh, the bed was about four feet wide and about 14 feet long. It was framed out so that there was, you know, brick around the bed. The bed itself was about four inches below grade, and there was no grass growing in it. So at this point, I'm doing the happy dance. So I load into my truck about 20 cubic feet of planting mix, and I head over there. I arrived there about 7 o'clock, and... Uh, while I'm unloading the soil and putting it in the bed, she's watering it. Took me about 20, 25 minutes to get the soil unloaded and uh, in the garden bed. She's watering it. And then we spent about 20 or 25 minutes and we planted and I left. And her garden was planted. And I still get calls from them saying, oh, the garden's still growing great. And this was like five years ago. Notice we did no digging. And the reason we could no, do no digging on this particular project is because there wasn't any Bermuda or nutgrass in the way. So all I did is I added four or five inches of planting mix right on top of the soil. I planted the seeds and then I let the seeds sprout and the roots do the work. So the roots were actually doing the digging for me down into the hard, harder soil. So often I will just add you know, two to six inches of organic matter right on top of your garden space and then you know let nature take its course less hard on the back it's my lazy gardener coming out you know like that <laughs> well there's like a that. reason i always had to do it growing up at dad's house <laughs> well there you go get that soil turned up before i get home boy <laughs> <laughs> i can hear rosie saying that so that's you know that, that's really the easiest thing to do if you have a garden bed that doesn't have Bermuda or nutgrass in it. If you have a garden bed with Bermuda or nutgrass in it, you have to get the Bermuda and nutgrass out before you plant. Otherwise, you're going to plant this nice garden. You're going to fertilize it, put nice healthy soil in place, and before long, you're going to have a nice lawn. And Bermuda is extremely dominant. There's it no... can be. It can be. And you know what I do in my yard is I actually put a concrete footer down about 16 inches and cap it with a red brick about six inches above the ground. And that's my garden bed. And then inside my garden bed, I just make sure that I have no Bermuda or nutgrass growing in there. It, and you said 16 inches. It, it takes every yeah. bit of that 16 inches. Yeah. Jay had quoted a study. I think it was the University of Arizona. Probably. Had found Bermuda grass root twenty four inches down wow. yeah. in one point. 
that's not surprising. Here's what happens. If there's a water source down there, the roots are going to go down to it. If like in my nicely flood irrigated yard, um, I would say it doesn't go any further down than about six or eight inches. Doesn't have to. Because it doesn't have to. That's right. Bermuda grass. Love it or hate it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you love and, it if you have a lawn. You hate it if you're gardening. There and, you go. And you've got both at the urban farm. And I've got both. Yep. You so. can do that. All right. We've got a couple of more talking points to wrap up here. Uh, before we get out of time, talk about planting calendar because that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. So about 20 years ago, my buddy Matt and I put together this planting calendar. You can find it for free at plantingcalendar.org. Just go there and download. You're going to, um, I'll tell you up front, we are going to put you on our local email list so you'll get notices about the free classes that I do around town and, you know, tours at the urban farm and that kind of stuff. But that'll get you a what to plant when, because here's the thing, you can go into most, uh, well, all big box stores and they'll sell you the wrong plant the wrong time of year. So, you know, if you go into a, in the fall, if you go into a, a nursery or a big box store and they're trying to sell you a watermelon or a squash, forget it, wrong time of year. If you go into that same store in January or February, and they're trying to sell you broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, forget it. That's wrong time of year. So that's what's good. This is going to help you with that so that you know what, what to plant when. Um, and, you know, once you've done it a few years, you'll know. Um, so, yeah, plantingcalendar.org. It's, it's uh, a really, really great free resource. And if you come and see me at one of my events, we actually have them laminated that you can buy, but they're free online. I like it. It's color-coded and from left mm -hmm. to right. You go from January to December, and it breaks down ideal time to plant, good time to plant, mm -hmm. uh, potential extended harvest season. So it, it'll help you map that year-round yes. food production. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the freebies that I give away. <laughs> I'm Really, I'm all about education. I true, for, for over 40 years, I'm committed to teaching people how to grow food successfully here in the desert. And that's, you know, that's the other thing that I do in my fruit tree program. I actually, with my fruit tree program, have a guarantee for people on our trees. They can buy trees from me. And if they do everything I tell them to do and it still dies, then, you know, then we have a replacement policy in place. And that's, uh, that's important. That's how dedicated I am to making sure that if you plant a tree with us, you're going to eat fruit. And next Saturday, we're going to have you back talking edibles in the landscape and desert. We've got... All about my fruit tree program. We're going to talk about the fruit tree program and then the, your online fruit tree growing webinar is shortly after that in January. Yeah. Um, on the, I think the second Wednesday and the, the third Wednesday of January, we have... Um, so you want to grow a fruit tree is one of them. Really important information. And number two is... Uh, three ways to kill your fruit trees. So you can get those at urbanfarm.org and get started with your own fruit tree program. We'll be back next Saturday talking about it. And I've got four missing spots in my orchard. I'm, I'm going to bring a map and have you help nice. me plot out what I need to fill in here. Woohoo! <laughs> urbanfarm.org. Farmer Greg, thank you as always. Thank you for having me.